Hello and welcome to the Dr. Jones Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Jones, and this is episode 74. In today's podcast, we're covering the amazing benefits of quercetin and how it can help for inflammation, allergies, and immune support, such as viruses. The top five human medications that are toxic to dogs and cats. And lastly, when is the right time to euthanize your pet? The Dr. Jones Podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, including iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. I'd sure appreciate it if you'd subscribe to my podcast and leave review. Then lastly, if you've yet to do so, I encourage you to get a copy of my free book. It's at veterinarysecrets.com forward slash news. So what is quercetin? Well, quercetin is a type of flavonoid antioxidant that is found in plant foods, including leafy greens, tomatoes, berries, broccoli, red onion, and even red wine. It's technically considered a plant pigment, which is exactly why it's found in these deeply colored, nutrient-packed fruits and vegetables. It's considered one of the most abundant antioxidants, and it plays a really important role in fighting free radical damage. Potentially, your dogs and cats can get a lot of it from potentially eating a healthy diet, but you'd be surprised at some of the big things kerosene can do, especially when you give it in a supplemented way. So how does it work? Well, research is showing that anti-inflammatory foods that contain quercetin can help manage a number of inflammatory health problems. And how exactly do these flavonoids provide their benefit? Well, it all comes down to these high antioxidants and the ability to scavenge the free radicals. You know, they are a major bioflavonoid in the human diet. And because of that, and some of the research that's gone on with it, we can see how they can also help benefit our dogs and cats. Quercetin itself also plays a major role in regulating the immune system's response to outside stressors. Through cell signaling pathways called kinases and phosphatases, two types of enzymes and membrane proteins needed for proper cellular function. Well, what are exactly sort of the top three things that I see that this can really help benefit our dogs and cats? The number one I see is helping lower inflammation. Flavonoids, you know, including quercetin, are important anti-inflammatories because they act as antioxidants, which literally means that you know, they're fighting the natural process of oxidation, which takes place over time as our pets age. Quercetin can help stop the damaging particles uh, in the body known as free radicals, which are negatively impacting how cells work. Research is now showing that inflammation is the root of many diseases, including heart disease, cancer, cognitive decline, um, and some of the autoimmune disorders. And there are a number of specific conditions related to inflammation where they believe quercetin could be beneficial for. First of all, heart disease, circulatory problems, insulin resistance and diabetes, eye-related disorders, including cataracts, allergies, asthma, and hay fever, stomach ulcers, cognitive impairment, viral infections, inflammation of the prostate, bladder, ovaries, cancer, skin conditions, including dermatitis and hives. Number two is helping fight allergies. One of the big things is quercetin is considered, quote unquote, almost a natural antihistamine and making an anti-inflammatory and kind of one of those really big key ingredients that I've discussed in the fa- in the past. If you're looking for some type of natural way to help your dog and your cat, it's got any type of seasonal allergies. So what happens during allergies is there's a chemical called histamines which are released and they are released in response to the immune system overreacting to say an allergen that lands on the surface of your dog's skin or your cat eats something that he's allergic to, i.e. you know fish for instance. And then you get all that itching, that scratching, that secondary inflammation. What kerosene can do is help stabilize the release of histamine from certain immune cells, which results in decreased signs and symptoms of allergies in terms of less itching, 
less scratching, less redness, you know, less chance of hives. And if you look past in some of the older forms of medicine, such as Chinese herbal medicine, they have specifically included um, plant ingredients, which include quercetin. So it's been known about for thousands of years. We've just been fortunate now to isolate it and see the benefit in our dogs and cats. The last big benefit I see for using quercetin is for immune support. First of all, there's big excitement now in human uh, medicine because of that. There's one Boston University School of Medicine study, uh, which was published in the Journal of Biological Regulators and Homeostatic Agents, which shows a link between a nutrient-dense diet rich in quercetin, plus other antioxidants, which are lowering the risk of cancer. They're also showing that quercetin seems to have potential to act as almost like a natural chemotherapy in terms of stopping cancer cells from proliferating in the first place. Super exciting stuff. But what got me really excited and part of like putting it on today's podcast is this one paper was published in 2014 called Quercetin, a Promising Treatment for the Common Cold. And from the paper, this is quoted, they're saying that quercetin is a well-known antioxidant with antiviral and anti-inflammatory properties. So what happens during a viral infection? There's things called reactive oxygenated species. These are essentially these free radicals are produced an excessive amount of weight causing excess tissue damage. When you get really effective antioxidants administered, i.e. quercetin, you decrease all that secondary tissue damage and make the virus far less less effective. It just can't do what it's meant to do. Experiments are suggesting that quercetin not only scavenges free radicals preventing tissue damage, but it's also decreasing certain inflammatory markers and exhibiting antiviral sort of anti-replicating effects. It's actually preventing the virus from replicating in the first place. They've actually seen it have this effect on several respiratory viruses, including influenza virus, para-influenza virus, respiratory syncytial virus, adenovirus, and rhinovirus. They're saying although quercetin's antiviral mechanisms are not well understood, you know, they've summarized a number of different possibilities and proposed. But the biggest thing they're also seeing is it got few side effects and there's few drug interactions. So it makes me really exciting with all the potentials in our dogs and cats more than just for allergies you know also being anti-inflammatory also being you know anti-infection specifically immune supportive and being antiviral well as far as doses for people and for allergies a typical dose is somewhere between 500 milligrams three times a day but we're looking at extrapolating the mac for dog doses it'd be about three to five milligrams per pound twice daily you know so somewhere like my neighbor's dog pippy who's often in many of the videos and featured on some of the podcasts you know she's a 50 pound dog she get 150 milligrams upwards of 250 milligrams uh, twice a day and you need to be dosing your dog for a minimum of two weeks to see if it's going to be beneficial or not the top five human medications that are poisonous to dogs and cats you know obviously all of us are serious about pet proofing our houses but believe it or not almost 50 percent of all calls that are received by the pet poison helpline involve human medications both both over the counter and prescription unreal i didn't realize it was so so high so because of that these are five really common ones the top five should be aware of these and i'm going to mention a few other things you should have on hand in case your dog or cat happens to consume any of them the first one is NSAIDs, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, especially ones such as Advil, which includes ibuprofen, Aleve, or Motrin. You know, this is the number one on the top 10 list of the most common household medications. 
one of the big things that needs to be um, emphasized is that ibuprofen is little as one tablet can be toxic to your dog. Naproxen is the same thing. They do our dog. They cannot tolerate it the same way. If you've got a cat, you should never be giving them an anti-inflammatory. But especially the never giving your cat any type of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. There are some that are safe for dogs, but these two in particular, ibuprofen and naproxen, are not at all. So Advil, Aleve, Motrin. Number two in the list is acetaminophen or Tylenol. Yeah, it's a super common pain reliever given to people and kids and you name it. We think if it's safe for kids, it's got to be, maybe it's safe for a cat. Never give it to your cat. Like one tablet is potentially toxic to your cat. It's so, so toxic to our cat. Yes, Tylenol or acetaminophen can be given to dogs, but it's got to be given at the appropriate dose and also ensuring that they're not on any other medications where it can interact with that as well. So given very cautiously and we sell them and I sell them suggested using Tylenol in veterinary practice. Number three on the list are the antidepressants such as Effex or Sambata, Prozac. Occasionally these are used in pets but seldom. The problem is that overdoses can lead to serious neurologic problems such as sedation, incoordination, tremors and seizures. Some of these antidepressants can also have a stimulating effect leading to dangerously elevated heart rate, blood pressure and body temp. Pets, especially cats, seem to enjoy the taste of Effexor and often eat the entire pill. Unfortunately, just one pill can cause serious poisoning. So you just gotta make sure you're keeping this completely out of reach of your cat for sure. Number four, the ADHD medications, you know, such as Adderall, Ritalin, Concerta. Medications used to treat ADHD contain potent stimulants such as amphetamines. Um, even minimal ingestion of these meds by pets can cause life-threatening tremors, seizures, elevated body temperatures, and heart problems. So once again, you're just making sure there's no way your dog can get into these medications. And number five in the list are the benzodiazepines, Xanax. Clonopin, Ambien, Lanesta. Yes, these medications, they're designed to reduce anxiety and help people sleep. However, in some pets, they can actually have the opposite effect. About half the dogs who ingest sleep aids become agitated instead of sedated. In addition, these drugs can cause severe lethargy, incoordination, including walking drunk, and slowed breathing in pets. In cats, some forms of benzodiazepines can cause liver failure when ingested. So in summary here of all these medications, none of these are appropriate to give your dogs or cats. Number two, you're making sure they're, you're keeping them way away in this, up, up high in these locked drawers and these cupboards that your animals can't access. Number three, if any of these get ingested, if you're on the phone, you're talking to your emergency veterinarian, you're getting your dog or cat into the veterinarian as soon as possible. If you're not able to do that, there's a lag in that. One of the, there's a couple big principles to keep in mind, especially if it's gonna be, you know, 30 to 60 minutes to see the emergency vet. First, I encourage all of you to have 3% hydrogen peroxide on hand, over-the-counter ingredient that I would even use in the veterinary practice to initially induce vomiting in dogs and cats. The hydrogen peroxide dose is five mils or one teaspoon per 10 pounds of body weight. What I would do is if I saw my dog or I saw my dog eat an ADHD medication, um, or I saw him eating an, an antidepressant. I would give him, the, and he didn't throw it up, I'd give him the one dose of that hydrogen peroxide. I would wait 10 minutes. If he didn't vomit in 10 minutes, I would repeat it. Even a longer period of time has passed and um, there's nothing being vomited out. Then you want to actually delay the absorption of what they've ingested. So the other good thing to have on hand is something called activated charcoal. Works really well. You can get it in a capsule formation. A standard pet dose of two to four milligrams 
per pound of body weight. And that would be something we'd give after you've tried to induce vomiting, nothing, say nothing has come up or it's been after the vomiting is induced, maybe more has been ingested and absorbed, then you give the activated charcoal as well. The last big point is obviously first you're gonna go see your emergency veterinarian and this is where it's sort of you're unable to get in as soon as possible and I really think you should have these two things on hand, the 3% hydrogen peroxide and the activated charcoal. The last part of today's podcast, and this actually comes from Dr. Mary Gardner. Um, She's the owner of the Lap of Love Veterinary Hospice. It's called uh, a better quality of life conversation, as in when is the right time to euthanize your dog or cat? So in part, this article was written uh, directed toward veterinarians and helping them better have the conversation with you as a pet parent. And so it's not just, you know, you're putting all the onus on your veterinarian, like is now the right time or is this the right time? Her point is really trying to involve everybody. Like, you know your dog, your cat the best. Your veterinarian can make sort of specific veterinarian judgments, but the two of you together are gonna come up with the decision as when is the correct time you're assessing the actual quality of your dog, your cat's life. So here's a number of things in what she covers uh, when she wants you as a pet owner and the veterinarian to assess your dog or cat's quality of life. First, she suggests look at uh, your dog or cat's disease injury or illness. They're saying look at the disease or ailment your pet is facing because depending on that the quality of the life could change. For example the conversation around a dog and heart failure will be much different for than with a dog that has arthritis because in heart failure it can really progress pretty seriously, gets really uncomfortable, there's all this coughing, breathing distress and they can get you know end up dying in severe respiratory distress. And you don't want to progress to the point where your dog gets to that point and you've got to bring them in gasping. Like you want to so that's what's important. You're talking about the disease and how it's going to progress and know like what will happen if we just leave this at home versus, you know, an older dog that has arthritis. Yes, we can be comfortable. We can manage their pain. And that's something, especially if you're an invested uh, pet parent, that you can help your dog and or your cat for a long period of time. Her second thing she says to discuss is your dog or your cat's personality, saying every animal is different. So we have to look at the pet's personality and just think, how is it handling its ailments? You know, how does your dog or cat handle pain, anxiety? How do they respond to certain treatments? Like say, would you be able to put a harness on them? Or would you be able to give them supported treatments such as sub-Q fluids? So that's a big thing. If your pet is very laid back, easy going, like my last dog, Lewis, it was easy to care for him at home. Other animals, not so much. And if you can't do that, then it's not really fair to just sort of leave them off in one corner being in pain and not having no real good quality of life. The third thing she talks about is, you know, looking at your own personality, right? They're saying every client is different. So you need to get a sense of yourself, just how are you able to handle your dog or cat's ailments? Are you able to manage the treatment regimen? You know, for instance, and she gave the example, I can relate to this. You know, some pet parents are really willing to administer sub-Q fluids, to be able to put a harness on their dog, take him outside. I think about my last dog, Jesse, where he had a, a, degener- a disease called degenerative myelopathy, and I had to kind of sling him with the towel and walk him around the yard. Obviously, I'm a veterinarian and was completely fine with it, but not everybody is that. So you need to know that. If you're willing to do that, that's great. Then we know your dog is getting a good quality of life, will manage his pain while he's at home. But you can't just leave him on the floor while he's peeing 
it's defecating and it's just not fair on your dog and the last point she suggests to talk about is just your budget right she says just don't leave this you know avoid this elephant in the room right you need to know about your financial decisions what you're able to invest in what you're able not to invest in as far as you know helping your dog or cat and you have the time and maybe there might be some more expensive veterinary treatments that might help your dog but you can't afford them so once again you also need to discuss those as well and i think what she's saying in the end is you bring all those topics out and then you can feel like you're most informed your veterinarian feels that you're most informed and together the two of you you know make the most caring informed decision for your dog or cat ultimately knowing when is the right time or not the right time well thanks you guys thanks again for listening to this edition of uh, the dr jones podcast it sounded a bit harsh sometimes i got a bit of a sore throat i've got illness running through our family and my son just got over a fever cough sore throat thing and i think he just gave it to me anyway hopefully next time you hear me talking i'll sound a little bit better but once again thanks for listening if i've if you've yet to do so i encourage you to get a copy of my free book it's at veterinarysecrets.com for his last news and i'll talk to you again next week it's dr jones